I'm Elaine Monaghan, and welcome to Profiles on WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars and writers, and get to know the stories behind their work. Our guest today is an old friend of mine, Ruth O'Reilly, originally from Belfast, Northern Ireland, who has worked as a journalist and filmmaker since 1989. She has worked in news, current affairs and documentaries, and won two Royal Television Society Awards, the British Industry Gold Standard, for investigations she produced and directed into hospital safety and failures in the criminal justice system in Northern Ireland. In 2006, she co-founded the production company Below the Radar Limited, known for excellence in media production in the public interest. She currently lives and works in my homeland of Scotland and visited Bloomington recently to participate in a symposium on representations of religion in media at Indiana University Bloomington's Media School. I should also mention that Ruth and I have known each other for 20 years. Welcome, Ruth. Thank you very much for having me here, Elaine. It's wonderful to have you here. So, Ruth, you live in Edinburgh now, and it's been 20 years since we both were reporters covering Northern Ireland's peace process, and 20 years since Northern Ireland signed its peace deal. You live in Scotland now. What drew you there? I suppose it was alive to the fact that my career and life had extensively sat within the background of this one overarching political story, which was the Northern Irish journey from civil conflict into peace and a new political setup. So amongst other things, I was probably quite conscious of the fact that I'd seen and done quite a lot of that and that I was entering another phase in my life and in my career. And I just I think I just wanted to see something a little different and to see the world through a slightly different prism. And there were a range of circumstances that took me to Scotland and to Edinburgh. My move there coincided with, again, Scottish politics becoming particularly re-energised over a time of the Scottish independence referendum as well. For that and a variety of other reasons, I decided to settle in Edinburgh, which, as you know, it's it's a special city. It's a very civilised, beautiful and lively city in its own way as well. So, Yeah, I can't dispute any of the following of, of what you just said about the wonderful city of Edinburgh. But we also both have many wonderful memories of life in both parts of Ireland, the North and the South. I have obviously not spent a lot of time there as a foreign correspondent who's dotted around the place, but we both were there during a very intense two-year period in the run-up to and aftermath of Northern Ireland's peace deal. So Mm -hmm. can you tell our, our listeners a little bit about how the situation is now in Northern Ireland? Because sometimes we look at it and think things haven't changed very much, have they? In some ways, life has changed and it has changed significantly for the better in that before the peace deal, before the ceasefires that preceded the peace deal, there was, I think, what was described as a low level or a low intensity conflict that had been in place for 25 years. And the human cost of that was around three to four lives a week. And that was within a population of about 1.5 million people. So with the ceasefires and the accompanying peace deal, those killings came to an end. So there are probably several thousand people walking about today who in theory may not have been alive had that peace deal not been reached. It also created political structure in the form of an assembly and an executive, which created the space for these differences over whether it was constitutional matters, but just also even territory 
funds and the day-to-day bread and butter work of politics where that could be taken care of and shared between the two different communities as well. But in recent times, that has ground to a halt. It has essentially collapsed because the two sides have become just so completely polarised and the relationships between them have broken down. So I think that's one of the tragedies at this stage. It collapsed into a bit of a stalemate. And because it's no longer such a priority on the global stage, it lacks the impetus at this stage, I think, to get it back up on its feet again. Right. One of the things that we've been talking about as we've been spending some time together in Bloomington all these years later is that, as you just described, even though people have stopped killing each other every day and there isn't that same sense, I suppose, of sort of sectarianism in your day-to-day existence, there still are these divides which are visible and Mm -hmm. um, invisible between the majority mostly Protestant, mostly pro-British community and the minority, mostly Catholic, mostly Mm -hmm. Irish-looking part of the communities in Northern Ireland. And I suppose the other thing that's kind of interesting is how the political landscape has been transformed. So when we were covering the peace process, Mm -hmm. we had these centrist parties, the Social Democratic Labour Party, led by John Hume, who is still with us and won a Nobel Mm -hmm. Peace Prize for his work. And the Ulster Unionist Party, whose leader then, David Trimble, also shared in the Nobel Peace Prize. Mm -hmm. But those two parties have sort of diminished into very small minorities. And we now have two different parties sort of representing the two communities. Can you tell us a little bit about what that's been like for you as a woman who grew up in Belfast Mm -hmm. and now we find these two what were considered much more sort of fringe parties in a way Mm -hmm. 20 years ago and to wake up each day now and find them at the heart of the albeit stalled government of Northern Ireland? It's been a really interesting, just for me even on a personal level, to see the political journey of Northern Ireland. Whenever I was a child and a teenager, politics and politicians more or less just seem to exist to comment on the chaos that swirled around us on the street. The dynamic was one of violence and containment of violence and politicians, in the absence of any political structures, really didn't have a whole lot to do. That all changed with the peace deal and at that stage that was driven by, as you say, the moderate parties representing the two sides who had the majority of voters at that stage. And I think what's interesting is that then whenever the new political landscape took shape. One of the things that it did was it institutionalised the fact that there were two separate communities in Northern Ireland. It sort of followed the Lebanese model to some extent. And that in turn meant that people had to identify with one side or another. So there's an argument that it institutionalised sectarianism, albeit within a safe space. I think then what happened, that then allowed the parties, firstly, they were drawing down salaries. They had a greater income they became professionalised and that meant that the parties who were kind of seen as more extreme, which was Sinn Féin, which was the party that was aligned with the Irish Republican Army, which was kind of the biggest guerrilla group during the actual campaign. So that was Sinn Féin on one side and the Democratic Unionist Party, which I think most people would associate with the late Reverend Ian Paisley. The younger talent had gravitated towards those parties. I think the older parties had really essentially fossilised with the same personalities in place They didn't really change with the times, whereas the other two parties had the dedication, the commitment, and they then just developed the know-how 
to work conventional party politics and to build conventional party machines. So that's one of the things that occurred. They also both gradually started to take over some of that middle ground while still holding on to their slightly more extreme supporters as well. So they gobbled up the middle ground on either side. So anytime there was an election, you weren't really talking about Irish Catholic nationalists versus pro-Britain Protestant unionists. Instead, you were talking about the two wings, the two factions on either side. So it would be Sinn Féin versus the Social Democratic and Labour Party and the Democratic Unionist Party versus the Ulster Unionist Party. I would say probably it took about 10 years for each of those parties to eclipse the older parties as well, but that's what's happened. In terms of where it's left us, I mean, I think, again, it's quite interesting. I think the big journey for Sinn Féin particularly has been distancing itself from that campaign of violence. And in a way, it's been felt, I think, that in the past few months that that journey has essentially been completed with the retirement of Sinn Féin's president, Gerry Adams. And the party is now led by Mary Lou Macdonald, who has no background and violent guerrilla campaigns of any sort. She's also from the Irish Republic as well. And she comes more from the mould of standard professional politics in many respects as well. So it's been quite interesting to see that happen. But it's also, if I'm frank, I find it quite depressing that still the language in the campaigning is heavily reliant on sectarianism and on fear. It goes hand in hand, I suppose, with most politics. But it's just been, I think, depressing to see that reconciliation hasn't occurred in the way that it could and should have. And it's simply to do really with the rough and tumble of politics and the institutional setup that we have. Ruth, you noted that um, Sinn Féin is no longer led by Gerry Adams and is now led by a woman. And of course, Irish history has many examples of prominent women in its history, including, for example, Bernadette Devlin, but other important figures, including Mary McAleese, who was the president of Mm -hmm. Ireland. Tell us a little bit, how has that transition from the male leadership of Jerry Adams to this new female leadership, how have you experienced that story? It's felt like a story that's been a very long time coming. I remember Mary Lou Macdonald being spoken of as a potential heir to presidency of Sinn Féin for many, many years before it happened. I don't know if you have a memory of that particularly. It passed me by, you must have been paying more attention. (laughs) It seems to be at a time whenever there's a general increasing feminisation of politics across the main. I work in Scotland now and there's a female First Minister, there's a female leader of the Conservative Party, there was until recently a female leader of the Scottish Labour Party. In Ireland, before Mary Lou Macdonald acceded to the overall presidency of Sinn Féin, the northern operation of Sinn Féin had been taken over by Michelle O'Neill. Also the Democratic Unionist Party, which had been headed up by the Reverend Dame Paisley and then afterwards by Peter Robinson. That's now headed up by another woman, this um, Arlene Foster as well. It's been an interesting development and I think they've all proved themselves to be managerially very capable. You know, I think probably where the real test will come will be whenever it comes around to a next election or any kind of a political campaign to see the effectiveness of their campaigning. Because what we've essentially seen emerge have been party machines but they had strong figureheads. They had well-known personalities in the form of these kind of quite macho men. But there seems to be a sense, I think, that with Sinn Féin, the fact that it's led by a woman, I think, copper fastens the message that party is no longer wedded to violence. It's now a softer form of politics. Would you say that it, well, perhaps it came earlier, that the true separation from this connection with the Irish Republican Army, although, of course, it's never been acknowledged, but we've always understood that those two organisations were intertwined in some way. Mm -hmm. Did it feel like that was the end of that connection? 
I think it will be seen probably as the final watershed or the final turn in the road away from that history. You know, it's over 20 years since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. By the time the Good Friday Agreement was signed, that in turn was almost 30 years from the outbreak of the Troubles. So the people who were associated with the campaign of violence are now middle-aged and older. The emergence of the parties and the politics around the various issues that created the IRA and that created the associated party with that have changed completely. There have been various steps along the road which have kind of seen Sinn Féin try to kind of cleanse itself from its IRA past. But I think the emergence of Mary Lou Macdonald as a new leader, it's completely removed now. It's a new standalone political party and that's all it is. I'll maybe just ask another thing about that. So one of the sort of aspects of how Sinn Féin is operating from a distance that seems a little surprising is that we continue to have this abstentionism, this practice of not taking up seats in the British Parliament, which for people who are alarmed by this alliance that has emerged between the Democratic Unionist Party and the government in London might find a little surprising. Do you detect any sense that that abstentionism might change with this new leadership? It's a really good question because the question of abstentionism has become more of an issue since Brexit. And as you say, because of the alliance between the Democratic Unionists and the Conservative Party, the party of government throughout the UK, the fact that Sinn Féin has a number of elected MPs who don't take up their seats, and I think it's nationalists who particularly the Catholic population who strongly wanted the links with the European Union to remain, that sense that Sinn Féin could in some way offset the balance of power by having a presence in Westminster after all. But the position is still fairly steadfast that it's a line to actually capitulate to recognising centralised British rule of Northern Ireland. It seems to be ideologically a big step for them to take. But who knows, they've taken so many steps up to now, you know, away from these various positions. So it might just be an island too far. <laughs> Nicely put. The government is not currently working. So you could argue, I suppose, that one of the maybe the central plank of the peace deal failed is maybe too strong a word, or mm-hmm. is it? They have been sitting down and governing together for over a year, I believe. So, yes. so do you have a prognosis for that? Why do you think we've reached that point? I think what brought us to that point was whatever way I think the parties had been working in the past was that begrudgingly they did work together. It was in their interest to work together, but they were presenting to the public still placed emphasis on difference and division and on the various battles they were having with each other. And in some respects, I think that intensified and it created amongst their base a stronger sense of the other side being the enemy rather than partners in government. I think that's kind of part of the dynamic that it created until... There were a couple of scandals essentially about the spending of public money, decisions that had been taken within departments headed up by the Democratic Unionist Party side as well. And that, I think, kind of really heightened that sense that firstly, things weren't particularly working Mm -hmm. and that secondly, the two sides couldn't trust each other as well. So it was on foot of that, the executive essentially collapsed back in, I think it was January of last year. Yeah, that sounds right. So I suppose then that this atmosphere of a lack of trust in one another, that seems to be what's fueling that set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. And of course, this kind of polarisation you're talking about is something that we're familiar with 
mm-hmm. you could argue, here in the United States also. Mm-hmm. So there seems to be a sort of a parallel there. And in fact, as you've worked your way through your journalistic career, I, I think what's sort of interesting is that you've also now started to focus on more and more stories that have universal significance. Mm-hmm. I think the Northern Irish peace process, I think, spoke to all of us as a mm-hmm. magical opportunity for politicians who, as we all know, hardly ever <laughs> seem to change their mould. Mm-hmm. The leopard changed its spots and all of a sudden we had a peace deal and we were fortunate enough to witness that. Mm. And I guess that had universal appeal for all of us internationally as an unusual moment in a sort of less positive light, I suppose. Mm-hmm. One of your most recent journalistic projects has recently reached a sort of pinnacle, if you like, mm-hmm with a recognition of the failure of safety within a specific hospital in Northern Ireland, but particularly in regard to the use of intravenous fluids, which is something that we all come across every day Mm -hmm. if we go into hospital. Can you tell us about this journalistic project that you've worked on that led to this finding? It was whenever I first went into longer form and more investigative journalism, And it was a story that started off as a human interest story. We were aware that there had been publicity over the death of a nine-year-old girl in hospital who had gone into hospital to have her appendix removed. The outworkings of that story through the various official channels had been that essentially her death had been avoidable, I think was the way it was described. So we decided to follow up on the story in some respects from a human interest perspective, but actually as we started to burrow further into it, we could see that there was more and more that simply wasn't adding up and particularly that the official line that had been taken over what had happened to her downplayed the scale of what had gone wrong in the hospital. It seemed to suggest that there was something that the child concerned was moribund when in fact she wasn't. The cause of her death was solely the treatment, the administration of the wrong type of fluids that had led to a catastrophic drop in sodium levels in her blood, which in turn had led her brain to swell up to the point that it killed her. And there were a number of children, weren't there, who died in that hospital as a result of, as your investigation found, use of this particular very common intervention, right? Yes, it affected a range of hospitals, although it fundamentally all funneled back to the one hospital as well, which is supposed to be the centre of excellence in Northern Ireland. What we find out was that there had been a death that had preceded the death of nine-year-old Rachel Ferguson, and that had occurred in the same area. The child concerned was 17 months old, had suffered from gastroenteritis, had been brought into hospital simply to be rehydrated in a drip, and within 24 hours was dead. And that was solely as a result of what had happened, the administration of those fluids and the administration of the wrong type of fluids and the administration of those fluids at the wrong rate. But what had happened in that case was that there was no official follow-up. There was an ability on the part of the executives in the hospital, probably to some extent supported by the medics, to again downplay the cause of the deaths to an extent that there was no formal follow-up or no formal investigation. So we knew that there'd been a previous death back in 1995 during a kidney transplant again of a young child, Adam Strain. Again, the official conclusions suggested that essentially he had simply died in surgery. There'd maybe been a couple of not best practice in terms of some of the protocols that had occurred during the surgery, but it wasn't made completely clear what that was, but essentially placing emphasis on the fact that this was a sick child anyway. So Mm. it was one of those circumstances where his condition had deteriorated during surgery. But again, as we look further, it became clear that the surgery itself, the kidney transplant had been very straightforward. And in fact, it was 
the practice on the part of the anaesthesiologist had led to the child being overinfused with the wrong type of fluids. So it was completely unrelated to his kidney history. And so it was the failure by the hospital executives to acknowledge these sets of circumstances that prompted the need for an investigation. And you were working with Ulster Television at the time, I believe, Mm -hmm. right? And just to name the children Mm -hmm. whose lives were cut short, they, they were Adam Strain, Claire Roberts, Lucy Crawford, Rachel Ferguson and Connor Mitchell. And years after you first Mm -hmm. started looking into these deaths, finally in January, the findings of a public inquiry were announced. Mm -hmm. How was that for you when that happened? How did that make you feel? It was strange and it's clearly gratifying to see the findings of the work that we put in, to see that they'd stood up to that level of scrutiny. And that was a point that the judge who had conducted the inquiry made of saying was that essentially that the findings that he was presenting 13 years after the original documentary had been presented, everything that was in the documentary stood up. There was nothing that he would part company with. And he also placed emphasis on the fact that had it not been for high quality investigative journalism, none of these events would have come to light. You've mentioned the names of the five children there, but one of them, Claire Roberts, until that documentary was broadcast, they did not know what had claimed the life of their daughter. And it was only whenever they watched the documentary that it all fell into place for them, it all made sense. And they pursued a further inquiry and found out that she had been a victim of exactly the same treatment. So it was a culture of polite cover-up, which had allowed the maladministration of these fluids to continue and for more deaths to occur. That's essentially what the underlying scandal was. My name is Elaine Monaghan and you're listening to Profiles on WFIU with Ruth O'Reilly an Irish filmmaker and journalist. Ruth, we've been talking about the power of investigative journalism to bring to light difficult truths that people don't really want necessarily to think about or hear about. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that growing up in Belfast, it's almost as if you felt like you were in the middle of the news and there was some sort of sense in which becoming a journalist allowed you to step outside of that reality. Tell us a bit about where you grew up and why you suddenly at some point decided to become a journalist. I grew up on the northern outskirts of Belfast. I was born in August 1969, which is known as the month that British troops arrived in the streets of Northern Ireland. But I grew up in an area that wasn't at the front line of the violence, particularly in those years of late 60s and early 1970s, was very intense. I grew up as a Catholic in a predominantly Protestant area, but we weren't at the receiving end of any sectarianism or any difficulties. And I think in many respects, my experience growing up would mirror that of lots of other people who weren't at the front line. The troubles were, they were there in the background, and sometimes you might trip across them, you might encounter them in some shape or form, perhaps the aftermath of a particular event, but it didn't intrude too much on your life. Looking back on it, it was all very abnormal. There were heavily armed troops roaming about the streets where you operated as well too. You'd be stopped at checkpoints regularly as well, but it was something that you just got used to. So for me, whenever I moved into my teens and was starting to think about a career, I was attracted to the media because it gave me a place to start to understand what was happening around me more and to be able to, I suppose, contribute to the storytelling of that, to become more involved in it, but at the same time to retain impartiality. 
So was it sort of therapy in a way? Yeah, it probably was. And at that age, you're curious, you want to know more, whether it's about yourself and where you come from. And I think that probably journalism, the media, that's what seemed to me kind of the best sphere to explore that. How aware were you growing up? Of, I mean, you mentioned you, you would see what now seem mm-hmm. like shocking images of mm-hmm. heavily armed troops and forces on the street that were part of your daily life. Yes, it would have been whenever I was in Belfast and very young. You were aware of the fact that you were living in a city called Belfast that always seemed to be in the news and always seemed to accompany pictures of things in flames, having difficulty, I suppose, just reconciling the two. As I grew a bit older, I lived outside Belfast in an area that was not so badly affected, but there was still a security presence. And there still would have been incidents like one evening whenever a group of friends, we were driving just between a couple of different houses and we heard a bang We thought it was possibly just something like a car backfiring, but it turned out it was actually an attempted bomb attack on a police car that was coming behind us as well. There were those sorts of things that were highly, highly abnormal. It wasn't surprising that they were within closer range to us than perhaps other people would have been. Did you always feel that you had to look out? Were you always conscious about your safety? Or was it something you didn't really think about most days? Or how was that growing up? I think as a teenage girl and as a woman you probably felt safer. The victims tended to be male. Whenever I moved back into Belfast in my late teens I became more aware of my background as a Catholic. At that stage campaign of violence by pro-British loyalist guerrillas the likes of the Ulster Volunteer Force and the Ulster Defence Association had escalated and at that stage you became more aware of the fact that if you stood out in any way as a Catholic it was probably just not a good idea to wear whether it was pieces of jewellery that signified Irishness, those sorts of things. Yes, it probably felt safer than some of the young men would have at that time. But you were always aware that it was not the safest environment. Like, for example, if there'd been a particularly severe incident, perhaps a serious attack by the IRA, the Irish Republican Army, that you knew that there would be some kind of a backlash. It was just practically without anybody having to speak to each other. You knew that there would be certain bars and clubs and areas that you just would not go into for the next couple of weeks. You would stay away from areas where there potentially might be some kind of a random attack in case that would happen whenever you were there. When you go back to Belfast nowadays... How does that feel? I mean, you're walking down those same streets, mm-hmm. okay, in different shoes, but mm-hmm. but you're walking down the same streets through the same places, seeing the same faces. Do you still feel that sense of a certain anxiety or is it just a distant memory? How is it? I think the city in the main has been transformed and for the better. I think for younger people who visit the city now, it is when I first moved back to Belfast as a student in the late 1980s, there were three venues for nightlife that were deemed to be neutral and suitable for students to go to. A total of three places to go to throughout your student years. And now there are bars, restaurants, all sorts of entertainment venues throughout the city now, and really smart ones as well too. The city has a reputation now as a nice place to visit, a nice place to study and a nice place to be young, which is wonderful to see that happen. I think probably one of the things whenever you go into the areas that were the fringe areas, it's sad that They haven't really changed a whole lot. You'll still go and you'll see the graffiti that marks them out as territory apart, as territory that would seem to be very staunch, its political views that would suggest that there is still a heavy presence of paramilitaries in some shape or form. That's particularly the case in the working class Protestant areas. So I think you'd be aware of whenever you go into those areas that you don't really belong. 
I feel like for our audience, we should actually spell out what we mean when we talk about the troubles. Mm-hmm. It's defined in different ways depending on who you ask. But um, a book that I like to reference for this is called Lost Lives, which was written by, and I think this is worth mentioning, rather mm-hmm. like your investigative reports, in order to do real uh, work into human lives caught up in these conflicts. It takes a lot of hands. And the authors of this book are David McKittrick, Seamus Kelters, who's sadly no longer with us, Brian Feeney, Chris Thornton and David McVie. And I think four of the five of them are journalists and one's a That's right, historian, yes, if I'm yes. not mistaken. And I, think, I think three of them I worked with at different stages in my career. Yeah. Yes, so mm-hmm. this is an incredible book, which is mm-hmm. many hundreds of pages long and lists the lives of people mm-hmm. lost in the Troubles which they define as running from 1966 to 2006, during which time, the 40-year period, 3,720 people lost their lives. And 2,087 of them were civilians, 727 of them Protestant, 1,259 Catholic. And then they list other categories of people who lost their lives, in, mm-hmm. be it in the police force or in, or in um, paramilitary groups course also uh, the um, British forces so that's what we're talking about mm-hmm. is, so it's worth you know for both of us I think yeah to yeah. remember those people one name in this book has particular relevance for you Ruth mm-hmm. but just going back to this reporting experiences that you had as a child growing up and as a student in Belfast before you became a journalist before you stepped outside if you like of the role of a civilian in Northern mm-hmm. Ireland I'm sure you never imagined that you would find yourself having to cover situations where people had been killed in the Mm -hmm. way that you did. But there was one incident that I think for all of us Mm -hmm. who have thought about and lived and covered Northern Ireland was of particular significance was, of course, the bomb in Oma. When you think back to the coverage Mm -hmm. of that day for yourself and just for the journalists in general, that was a very strange period because the peace process seemed to be working, Yes. and then this awful thing happened. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience of that day? I think that the Oma bombing was, in some ways, as you say, what was unusual about it, what set it apart was, firstly, the scale of it. It was the single greatest loss of life in a single incident in the Troubles, and that was, I think, there were a total of 29 people killed, and that included a woman who was heavily pregnant with twins as well. It happened in August 1998, which was actually four years after the ceasefires had been called. So in a sense, it shouldn't have happened as far as the framework of, you know, our timeline of the Troubles is concerned. And there have been other incidents before that as well, I should add. There were deaths that continued after the ceasefire. The perpetrators of the Oma bombing were from a splinter group, a group that had formed from the provisional Irish Republican Army, the main Irish Republican guerrilla force that had called the ceasefire in 1994, in August 1994. And the people behind the splinter group, which became known as the Real IRA, were opposed to the peace process. They weren't happy with the line approach that was being taken, which was essentially power sharing solely within a Northern Irish context. There had been a bombing campaign which had been carried out by the real IRA, but there had not been a single life lost. And there had been a bombing that had occurred probably about two or three months before Oma. And I remember at the time thinking, gosh, that was very close. You know, the usual choreography of these things would be that a bomb would be planted in a car, car bombs, of course, being supposedly an Irish invention. And a warning would be phoned in, usually to a newsroom, accompanied by a code word that would say where the bomb was, how long there was for police to clear the area 
usually I think the intention was as well that they would catch police just at the tail end of the clearing of the area taking place. So this particular bomb that had occurred a couple of months before Roma, I remember at the time thinking that was a very, very close shape. The bomb had gone off much earlier than the warning had suggested. So whenever Roma happened, the warning that had been phoned in was similarly, shall we say, careless. Well, you know, at this stage, we don't really know fully the intentions behind what happened, but it gave vague information. It named streets that actually didn't exist Mm -hmm. whenever it described where the bomb had been planted. And the net effect of it was that whenever police went to clear what was then a very, very busy street, because I think there was a festival of some part taking place that day, the net effect was that the public were essentially very down in the direction of where the bomb itself actually was. So there were people who were actually gathered around it at that stage whenever the car bomb exploded. But this was all unknown to us. It happened on a Saturday. It was a lovely sunny day. As journalists, we all got the usual call to say, OK, your day off is now over. You're heading to Oma. There's been a bomb has exploded there. And it's in a way, to my shame, it, the sense was, oh, here we go. It's another one. We were used to a particular trope almost. We were used to a certain routine around these sorts of things and all of us jumped into our cars and headed the 70 miles up the road from Belfast to go to Oma with absolutely no idea of what lay ahead of us whenever we got there. And it was only whenever we arrived it began to dawn on us that what we'd entered was a catastrophe. I was sent immediately to the hospital and it was a small country town with a very small hospital and an A&E that coped valiantly in many senses, but which really just wasn't designed for this kind of an incident as well whenever the injured were being brought in. It was horrifying. It was absolutely horrifying. And of course, the work of a journalist, while it hasn't really changed in those intervening years, Mm. the way we did our work in those days was very Mm -hmm. different from today. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about how that was. I had just joined a wire news service at that stage. This was 1998, so it was the very early days of mobile phones coming into standard use. I'd been given a mobile phone, but it turned out what I discovered whenever I went up to Oma was that there was no coverage. The network for the mobile phone that I'd been provided with didn't work. So it meant that whenever I got to the hospital, it was kind of back to the old fashioned way of finding you know, phone boxes and dialing a free phone number to feed in information to your news desk and to get further advice and guidance. So I was sent up to the hospital, which was kind of set apart from the town. That's whenever I discovered that there were only two phones in that building to start with as well and that the building was already packed full of people who needed to contact family, relatives at home as well too. And there were two major difficulties with that. Firstly, that the phones were in demand as far as patients and the relatives who were there were concerned. And secondly, that people could hear me phoning in copy. Mm-hmm. And talking about what I was witnessing around and talking about them with Mm -hmm. them all milling about or just sitting waiting for news at the same time. It really was one of the most difficult moments, I think. And it it was being torn between, you know, I had to do my job as a journalist to a certain extent, but it just reached the point I couldn't monopolise a phone anymore. People were very civil about it as well. They were very, very nice, but it was not... It just wasn't the way that I wanted to behave as a human being in those sorts of circumstances. And still, I'm sure you treated everyone around you with great respect and humanity. I did my best. I think sometimes it can be a cruel industry, but I think in those circumstances, I probably discovered what was more important.
you're listening to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Elaine Monaghan, and I'm here with Ruth O'Reilly, an Irish journalist and filmmaker. Thinking back to things that have happened across the course of our 20-year mm-hmm. friendship, mm-hmm. Uh, Ruth and I first met when we were journalists covering Northern Ireland's peace process, whose peace deal is now celebrating its 20th anniversary, although celebrating is perhaps not the best word mm-hmm. to describe it since um, the assembly it created is not currently meeting. And the situation is complicated, of course, by Brexit, which is a topic that we will probably not go into (laughs) since it's so immensely complicated. (laughs) But suffice to say that it's made Northern Ireland even more complicated than it used to be. (laughs) I think a game changer, probably, but we just don't know what shape, (laughs) what form. Yeah, we don't know what the border is going to be. We don't know what it's going to look like. What's your passport situation, Ruth, come to think of it? I now have two passports. My father was from Dublin. I always travelled on an Irish passport. And uh, whenever Brexit occurred, I suddenly realised I need to get myself my UK passport (laughs) now. So I've got both. You mean you want to be a European Union citizen as well? Oh, yes. I want to maintain both. I need to maintain my UK citizenship. But my EU and my Irish citizenship are important to me. Yeah, this is a sort of a paradoxical situation that people in my country of Scotland are a little cranky about because if you were born in Northern Ireland, you're allowed an Irish passport, yes. whatever your background, and suddenly we have mm. all these Protestants who've suddenly decided that they have an Irish stripe, a green <laughs> stripe as well as an orange stripe. And those of us in the north of Ireland whose parents or whose father forgot to register as the child of Irish <laughs> immigrants before he turned 30 are stranded only with a British passport. But there you go. (laughs) Anyway, Ruth, I wanted to um, bring the the conversation around a positive sort of anecdote leading to a slightly more difficult conversation, I suppose. So as you know, um, and you've met some of these students, Mm -hmm. I, I just came back over spring break from an absolutely amazing walk down memory lane for me with 16 wonderful IU students Mm -hmm. from journalism, religious studies and international studies. We travelled over spring break to Dublin, Belfast, Mm -hmm. Castle Blaney, (laughs) County Westmeath and Londonderry to tell the stories of the people who live there 20 years after the peace deal and of course with many other things you know, going on right now. Ireland mm-hmm. just seems to specialise in having news. So there was lots of news mm-hmm. to cover even 20 years after this peace deal and the end of daily killing. And um, could I just take this opportunity to congratulate you and your students on the wonderful work. I've had an opportunity to inspect it all and I've been astonished at the quality of what you've all achieved and the nuance and the depth that you and your students managed to achieve with complex and difficult stories and to present them in a way that's digestible to your audience back home. Well, Ruth, that's the nicest thing you could have said. (laughs) And I hope my students are listening and that anybody who's interested in their work can go to our website, which is (laughs) mediaschool.indiana.edu forward slash representing religion, where you'll see the symposium where their work was published. So anyway, (laughs) one of the stories that we have realised very recently, you never told me in 20 years of knowing each other, is the story of your uncle, Father Noel Fitzpatrick, whose life was cruelly taken and a life whose end, but not its entirety, is told in this book, 
lost lives, which we've been talking about, that chronicles the more than 3,000 deaths that resulted from the Troubles. And Father Noel, as I'll mm-hmm. call your uncle if I may, mm-hmm. um, was killed on the 9th of July in 1972 under very tragic circumstances. I wonder, would you mind just telling us, you were how old? I was, I was two, I was nearly three. So it was, my memories of it would be that Uncle Noel was someone who was a regular visitor to the family home and he was simply known as Uncle Noel and all of a sudden he wasn't there. That's what my memories are. And then as I got a bit older, I became aware of why he wasn't there. My sister, who's two years older than me, can actually remember more of what happened that night whenever my mother received a call and had to leave the house and a neighbour came over and babysat for us. And the people who came and went the following days, my father worked as an engineer and he was based in the south of England, I think, at that stage. So his sudden return home, this quiet upset in the house. But my memories of it are very vague. But it's something that is part of our family history, like many families in Northern Ireland. And I think that's maybe why you haven't spoken about it for so long. Yeah, I think it's one of those things whenever I worked as a journalist, I think this isn't unique to local journalists, journalists who work in the area where they are from. You become aware that quite a few people have their own stories to tell. And I know that their other colleagues of mine had similar losses as well. And I think whenever the troubles were still ongoing, it was inappropriate to refer to it to any great extent, in part because the work that you were doing was not about you. It was about the people. And as a woman, you were usually, I you know, frequently find myself as the person who was sent round to the home of a family who had experienced another loss as a result of the violence as well. So it wasn't something for you to talk about or to draw comparisons with because you were reporting on people's own individual personal experiences and it was completely inappropriate to go to that place of your own family's loss and start to project that onto other people because you just don't know what their experience of it is. There was another dimension of it, which I suppose was always being quite careful about providing information. It's the old problem of whether the shorthand of journalism or general shorthand, which is that people will make assumptions about what your politics are or they might make assumptions about the incident without knowing the fuller details as well. I'm far from perfect, but, you know, I do strive to maintain my impartiality so that it's easier for people to deal with me and to speak to me. And I think if they'd maybe simply heard the shorthand, yes, her uncle was killed in a gun battle, supposedly, it would seem, with the British Army in 1972, people would make assumptions and I would understand why. What kind of assumptions do you mean they would make? They could make assumptions that he was the source of some kind of trouble, that he was actually engaged in some kind of gunfire with them. They could make assumptions that because he was in a frontline area of West Belfast, that that in some way depicted what his politics were. I think probably now the further away that we get from those years whenever the conflict was intense and ongoing, has become easier to start to talk about these sorts of things. It's kind of the hot topic in Northern Ireland at the moment. Strangely, it's not so much to do with the collapse of the executive. You will hear people talking more often about the past. There are lots and lots of stories about, well, about people's individual stories, but also how Northern Ireland is dealing with or sometimes failing to deal with the past. They've tended to be dealt with in a rather conflict-driven way, which again would make me wary about speaking publicly about these sorts of things. But I do think that the climate is starting to change in that way. I think that there's now more space for acceptance and for nuance. The fact is, is that actually what happened to my uncle 
He was a Catholic priest and he was going to the aid of a wounded parishioner who was a 13-year-old girl who'd been shot and he was apparently waving a white handkerchief at the time that he was shot himself. And the bullet that killed him also killed the parishioner who was escorting him to the scene where the 13-year-old girl was killed. There were a total of five people killed in that incident in that night. And I think the suggestion that any of them were in any way complicit in the events, they were civilians. You can't make assumptions about who they were, what they were doing, what their background was, what the story was. What do you know about the story that day? You've mentioned five people were killed. I think this book, Lost Lives, mm-hmm. it's very careful not to draw conclusions, but it talks about eyewitness testimony mm-hmm. referencing the bullets apparently coming from British forces. Mm-hmm. They're not being evidence at the time of firing coming from what they call the estate. Yes. What does that mean? The 9th of July 1972, there had been a brief IRA ceasefire at that stage and it broke down. Now, again, I'm not really terribly clear about the circumstances of that. The area where my uncle was a Catholic priest was known as Ballymurphy or Spring Hill. It's kind of interchangeable and it is right on a frontier. It's right on a peace line with a very Protestant estate as well, too. There was an army presence nearby. It was one of the poorer areas and it was seen as a source of substantial provisional IRA activity. So it was therefore the subject of much attention from British forces. You know, I'm not terribly clear about exactly what triggered it. The first death seemed to have been the 13-year-old Margaret Gargan. And my uncle and the gentleman who was with him went to her aid. There was another young 15-year-old teenage boy, John Dougal, who was with them as well. And all three of them were shot. They were felled by shots that seemed to come from the interface area that was occupied either by the army or by loyalist guerrillas. But I think the nature of the gunfire concerned apparently was high velocity gunfire and that would usually indicate that it was the army who was shooting. You mentioned, and I think this is a point worth repeating, that we've maybe reached a point now where some of these stories can be told with more nuance and that's why mm-hmm. you feel comfortable talking about your uncle, yes. Father Noel Fitzpatrick, who was killed all these years ago. And when we've been talking about this story, you've mentioned that he was one of three priests who were killed mm-hmm. around that time in that area and that it wasn't a straightforward story mm-hmm. and that there were grey areas within this story that mm-hmm. you think you would like people to know about. Tell us a little bit about these three priests and their lives and what they tell us about how things really were for civilians on the ground in Northern Ireland during the Troubles. It was known that two of the priests who were based in the Ballymurphy area were killed. One of them, Father Hugh Mullen, was killed in August 1971 in a dreadful series of incidents that followed the introduction of what became known as internment without trial of Catholic men. In that particular incident, I think there were 11 people killed over two days in that Ballymurphy area, including Father Mullen. And then, of course, it was known about what had happened to my uncle, Father Noel Fitzpatrick, in July 1972. But what came to light was that there was, in fact, a third priest, a Father Gerard or Jerry Weston, who was a chaplain with the army and with the army unit that was stationed nearby. And the army unit that was stationed nearby was actually the parachute regiment which was known as probably the most aggressive of the British forces in Northern Ireland at that time. It was the regiment that had been behind the killings of the 11 Ballymurphy civilians in 1971. But more famously, it became known for the killings that became known as Bloody Sunday in January 1972. And that was an infamous episode that led to the burning down of the British Embassy in Dublin. That's just the extent to which it stoked up 
a rage amongst the nationalist community. It was a real watershed moment in Northern Ireland's troubles. So there was a priest who was a chaplain who was attached to the parachute regiment. And at that stage, the parachute regiment was actually stationed in the army barracks beside Ballymurphy. After Bloody Sunday, that regiment, the parachute regiment, were returned to their barracks in England in Aldershot. And there was a revenge attack on those barracks by Irish Republican Army guerrillas. It was a bomb attack. A number of cleaners were killed in the attack, but there was one person who was attached to the regiment, and that was Father Jerry Weston. What we've learned, actually, is that Father Weston and my uncle were clearly friends and that they worked together while these troubles were seething in that particular area. Still in the midst of all of that, there were connections between the priests who were operating in that area. So in the aftermath of Father Jerry Weston's death, my uncle was actually interviewed and spoke publicly about his qualities as a human being, his qualities as a priest. He spoke about him as someone who had reached out to the population of Ballymurphy who would have accompanied my uncle in visits to see parishioners, to see the hardship people had to live in. He depicted someone who was essentially trying to understand. It's the most extraordinary footage because this is in the aftermath of Bloody Sunday in an area that's already been afflicted by terrible, terrible violence and where feelings against the British presence would have been running quite high. And yet my uncle was someone who was here who was still sticking fairly steadfastly to the line about trying to see the humanity and the good in people and constantly striving to bridge the gulf that have emerged even in the most extreme circumstances. I think it's worth emphasising the nature of that difference, if you like. Mm -hmm. If you look at the labels that we could have attached to Father Jerry and your uncle, Mm -hmm. Father Noel, Father Noel was from Northern Ireland, an Irish Catholic in Northern Ireland. Jerry Weston was a soldier and a priest from Liverpool, which, as we know, in the west of England is Mm -hmm. not just the home of the Beatles, but a large, originally Irish Catholic population. And so the mere fact that he was a priest with the British army would have set him in a slightly different role than the mm-hmm. one that your uncle played. So their friendship has particular meaning, I think, and listening to you talk about it is very significant, I think. And I believe we have a short audio clip of your uncle talking about Father Weston. Father Weston was a very friendly person to know. and He was a very charitable man and he was a very kind person and uh, we certainly uh, sorry, were very, very sorry to hear about this terrible tragedy that has occurred and I can no doubt I'm speaking for very many of the people uh, they'd be very sorry to hear about the death of Father Weston. How would you rate his achievement in trying to harmonise relations between the army and the Roman Catholic community? Yes well this is a Catholic estate and he tried to do whatever he could do uh, to keep to get peace to get a better relationship between the people, Catholic people, and the army. He tried to see whatever he could do there for good relationships, uh, but he was well aware of the, the problems of the area, the overcrowding, the unemployment, uh, the bad housing, and so forth, and, and even the, the youth. He tried to do something for the youth also. He would go round to people's houses, would he? Yes, he visited on a number of occasions. He walked round uh, dressed as a priest, not as an army officer and uh, to begin with the, the people of course they just presumed he didn't realize he was a, an officer but he were, became to be accepted by the people and uh, liked i would say 
he uh, also he offered mass and a couple of occasions in our the Corpus Christi Church in the Ballymurphy Estate. Ruth, we, we actually have a sermon that your uncle delivered or comments that your uncle made about mm-hmm. Father Jerry Weston. And I want to just read a few words that he said about him. He said, It was mainly in the course of my work in the parish that I came in contact with Jerry Weston. Matters such as attending to wedding papers of soldiers marrying girls from the area or acting as liaison between the army and a family who had a son in the British army with a problem to be sorted out. I also met him occasionally at meetings and discussions. The people of Ballymurphy Estates must have known him because he was a frequent visitor to our church and to the occasional home in the parish. And without a doubt, he was accepted and welcomed by the people who found it difficult to believe that this priest was in fact also a British officer. I believe that he tried to understand our complex Irish problems and wanted to do something about them. And he did really seem to be concerned about the conditions and the suffering of many of our people. Father Weston did achieve a limited success in building up and getting relationships between the British Army and the people. But as we well know, this was quickly eroded with the advent of the Conservative government and more so by internment. So I want to ask you, Ruth, we know what your uncle said about Father Jerry Weston. What did people say about your uncle? I know within the family and within the various seniors and elders who are now few in number, he was very highly regarded. He was regarded as someone who was a special person who had a tremendous charisma and a spirituality about him that was evident and that people commented on even long before he died. He was seen as someone who had a great ability to see the humanity in all people everywhere he went and who wanted simply to create a better world, I think, wherever he went, but in a gentle and a spiritual way. Whenever he died, we know that there was a tremendous outpouring of support and love the parish has actually been very dedicated in keeping his and Father Mullins' memories alive as the priest that they lost and that they treasured because Ballymurphy would be an area where there was very little state support. The church was probably actually the most visible organisation that was present in Ballymurphy to provide whether it was education or other pastoral care at that stage. There was a letter we came across recently as well which had been sent to my uncle, another Uncle Noel's brother, Uncle Raymond, who was also a Catholic priest, and it came from a captain in a different British Army regiment. The captain had encountered Uncle Noel before, and he spoke of his encounter with Uncle Noel as having created almost a sense of certainty about the presence of God. It was someone who I think just carried the true message of Christianity wherever he went. So he was a special person, I think he was, and he was recognised at that when he was alive. He seemed to have an effect of touching people's hearts and souls. That's a lovely legacy, actually. Do you feel that there's a sense in which this character that you're describing in your uncle has translated in a way into your work as a journalist? I couldn't in a million years compare myself. I mean, I can't imagine the courage of whether it's Uncle Noel, but also the parishioners that night whenever they went out to try to retrieve Margaret Gargan Mm -hmm. and to try to administer the last rites and especially knowing what they'd known about what had happened in previous incidents as well. I, in a million years, couldn't compare myself to him in the work that he's done. Well, maybe you couldn't, but I can see a certain parallel in the courage that it took for you to go and cover the troubles 
to go to OMA and cover the bombing under difficult circumstances. You know, the work that journalists do, perhaps you could talk a little bit about part of your career that we haven't necessarily talked about when you worked at The Detail. And it seems as if this story that you're telling now about your uncle, where we're hearing the details of his life, that there's something there that tells us about the urgency of the work that journalism does in memorialising people's lives. What was The Detail? Well, The Detail is an analysis and an investigative news website that also specialises in data journalism now. It was set up in Northern Ireland with the support of philanthropic money. I was the founder and the founding editor. It was set up within Below the Radar where it still sits. And it was set up to essentially invigorate investigative journalism in Northern Ireland, which it has done. And that's a credit to the journalists who've been involved in it since it was set up. It's not particularly a reflection on me. But the name was set upon due to the experiences that it had as an investigative journalist prior to setting up the detail. And that was about an awareness of the importance of not skirting over little details that maybe look anomalous or that don't seem to particularly make sense. You know, to dampen down that tendency to try to paint a picture in broad strokes, which I think journalism has increasingly tended to do over probably the past 30 odd years or so. So I think the detail was essentially about saying, no, no, this is actually, it's a detail, it's a granularity, we shouldn't be afraid of it. It's our job as journalists to be able to convey that to the public in a way that they can digest and don't talk down to them. They will get it, they'll understand it, but we'd have to make the effort to make sure that they do, that they're given this as well. It's about a particular way of seeing things and if it's seeing things that don't fit a particular pattern instead of trying to look past it, focus down on it and don't be afraid of it. Just challenge yourself whenever you see things that don't seem to fit in with your own biases. Thank you Ruth very much for sharing that story and for the details of your life, for the details of your Uncle Noel's life, the details about his friendship with an English priest in the British Army and also for sharing your stories of your experiences as a journalist. Thank you very much for having me, Elaine, and if I can just also put in the record my appreciation of the work that you're doing here and turning out a new generation of journalists and helping them appreciate nuance and convey that to a public that I believe firmly is hungry for meaningful, authentic journalism. I've been speaking today with Irish journalist and filmmaker Ruth O'Reilly, Thank you for being with us. This is Elaine Monaghan for Profiles. Copies of this and other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. The producer is Aaron Kane. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. The executive producer is John Bailey. Please join us next week for another edition of Profiles. Profiles.